Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. We're continuing our series of messages on the book of Psalms, and what we've learned is that the Psalms are a compilation of human responses to different seasons or situations we may find ourselves in. And so essentially what the Psalms do is they teach us how to talk to God, how to pray, how to respond when, for example, we find ourselves in a season of discouragement or despair. How do we talk to God and praise His name and declare His goodness? How do we thank God for who He is? The Psalms teach us how to move from just talking about God to actually talking to God. That's what the Psalms are designed to do. So what we've been trying to do this summer is looking at the different types of Psalms that are here in this glorious book. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 23, which is a psalm of trust. A psalm of trust. Now, Psalm 23 might be the most familiar psalm to most of us. It's actually a psalm that's normally used at funerals or at sad occasions. But the reality is this psalm actually has applicability to everyday life. You see, because while trust is implicit in this psalm and how it's encouraged here, we understand that faith and the call to live by faith is something the entire Bible gives witness to. We are called to live by faith and not by sight. If you're reading the Bible through this year with us as we've made our way through the New Testament, we've made our way to the book of Mark. In this past week, we read a specific story where Jesus commanded a certain person to believe him, to trust him. And this man was looking for Jesus to perform a miracle. And so he says, Jesus, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? I think we can all relate to that tension, that kind of moment of, Lord, I trust you. I believe you. I know that you say who you are, but Lord, sometimes I struggle in my faith to see my faith really grow and move forward. The reality is what the scripture gives us to grow our faith are the promises of God. You see, the promises of God are meant to fuel the roots of our faith. If you can picture your faith like a root system that a tree has, your faith and your root system is meant to go deeper and wider as you grow as a Christian. And what you're taking the the roots of your faith down into are the promises of God. And this is the idea that's really going to control our time together this morning. Psalm 23's basic idea is this. The promises of God fuel our trust in God. The promises that God gives us in his word are meant to grow and cultivate our faith in this God. But the question I want to pose to you and ask you as we start is whether we're believing the right promises. I wonder this morning if some of us are struggling in our faith, struggling to really see the roots of our faith grow down deep and wide into Christ because we're trusting the wrong promises. I heard one author say it this way, many American Christians are frustrated with God for failing to keep promises he's never made to us. I wonder how many of us this morning are struggling with God Because we're expecting him to act a certain way. 
We're expecting him to do certain things. And when he doesn't deliver, we're frustrated. But the reality is many of us could be allowing our American culture and the world we live in to shape how we view God and his promises more than we are the word of God. And so what I want to take you back to this morning, brothers and sisters, is I want to show us from Psalm 23, three specific promises God has made to us that are meant to take the roots of our faith down deep into who he is. But as we look at each of these promises, I'm going to expose a counterfeit promise, a false promise that some of us may have subtly bought into and could be stalling us out in our faith. The first promise I want you to see in this passage is the promise to provide. Psalm 23 verses 1 through 3 teaches us first that God promises to provide. Look in your Bibles at verse 1. The Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. That's important that before we run to the rest of this text, we just slow down for a second and talk about the idea of a shepherd. You see, the image and the background of a shepherd has a rich, rich biblical and theological kind of background that we need to understand. From the historical lineage of people like Abel and Isaac And Abraham and Jacob, even David, they were all shepherds, pointing all the way forward to Jesus Christ, who's promised to be a shepherd. So that in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This is an image that's used and woven throughout the entirety of the Bible. And the reason for that is the culture and the context in which the Bible was written, they understood the intimate relationship a shepherd had to the sheep. You see, in the time in which these psalms were written, even into the New Testament era, it wasn't like sheep were in this contained area where they were safe. Sheep were out on the open frontier, constantly exposed to danger. And because that was the case, the shepherd had to live right with them. Shepherd had to stay with the sheep all the time to protect them from the dangers that were there. A few months ago, I had a conversation with some members of our church that have a lot of experience with sheep, uh, Heath and Misty Fisher. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if they would like me to call them shepherds, but they raise sheep and work with sheep. And it was cool to talk to them because we as Americans are pretty far removed from the whole sheep scene. Some of you are very thankful for that. Um, but we, it's a hard time for us. But one of the things that Heath and Misty told me when they raised sheep is that Misty would say that when they would go outside and she would talk to the sheep, they would kind of do what she would say. But when Heath would go outside and they would hear his voice, they would immediately respond to him. And it harkens back to what Jesus said, right? That the sheep know my voice. They hear my voice and they respond. There was this intimate kind of connection between a shepherd And a sheep. But there was also an essential connection. You see, because while there was this intimate, close, kind of personal connection between shepherd and sheep, the reality is simply this if the sheep don't have the shepherd, they don't survive. Sheep, especially in this era, could not survive without the shepherd. This is why back in your Bibles, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. 
In other words, the psalmist is saying, my relationship to God is one that I desperately need him. I cannot live my life without the active engagement and connection and grace that God as shepherd provides for me. So this is important because what it makes us do right from the beginning of verse 1 is it causes us to kind of pause and say, well, how am I viewing God? Do I view God as a necessity to my life? Is something I cannot live without? Or do I view God as optional? Do I view God as nothing more than a means to helping me accomplish my goals for my life? Psalm 1 or Psalm 23 verse 1 starts by calling us to stop and recognize that this shepherd-sheep kind of connection is David's way of saying, you've got to recognize how desperately you need the Lord. But in an effort to try to drive that home, he describes kind of a typical day in the life of a shepherd and the sheep. In verses 2 and 3, he describes some of the functions the shepherd has in providing for the sheep. Look at verses 2 and 3 and notice some of these functions. He says, He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life and He leads me along the right paths for His namesake. On the one hand, the shepherd's feeding the sheep. He's providing rich nourishment in these green pastures. He's also refreshing the sheep. He's bringing them to water and restoring their souls, restoring their lives. He's sensitive not to drive the sheep too hard so as to hurt them. The Bible also here says that the shepherd guides the sheep. He leads them in paths of righteousness, holiness for his namesake. When you put these three ideas together, what you get in part is a description of the ministry of God's word. You see, the way that the Lord as our shepherd feeds and restores and guides us is through his word. His word feeds us. The word of God gives us truth that teaches us, that shapes us, that forms us. His word refreshes us. The word of God is this source of life and strength that restores us gives us the strength we need to keep going. The Word of God also guides us, shows us the path of holiness and righteousness that we're meant to do for the glory of God, for His namesake. What David then is telling us is that God does provide for us. He does give us what we need. No, God does not always give us what we want. He gives us what we need. But the emphasis here is that God gives us what we need through his word. There are many means that God may use to speak to you, communicate to you, to encourage you. But what's foundational in God's provision in my life and in your life is the word of God. And so the question is, have some of us bought into the false promise that we can be fed and restored and guided apart from the word. I said a minute ago that maybe some of us are stalling out in our faith because God's failing to keep promises he's never made to us. Could it be today that some of us 
are struggling to see the roots of our faith grow down deep into Christ because we're trying to grow our faith apart from active and regular engagement in this book. Because what David is saying is very clear. It is impossible, impossible to experience the feeding, the guidance, and the restoration that God provides apart from the Word. You have to have the Word of God for that. So the picture I get in my mind to help me understand this is it's kind of like what a runner does when they're running a marathon. I told you guys before that when I first started dating Shelly, she was training for a marathon. And I had to make sure she wasn't certifiably crazy to run 26.2 miles. But um, I found that she wasn't. She was just very athletic and wanted to run. And, but one of the things you have to do if you're training for a marathon is you have to stay hydrated. Right? And if you've ever watched one of these races on TV or some of you have actually done a race like this, you know that there are these hydration stations all throughout the race that give runners the water that they need. And, and the reason for this is pretty simple. When you run that far, run that hard, you can literally sweat out so much that your body weight changes, right? So you have to replenish your body. Imagine, though, for a moment, a runner who decides he's going to run 26.2 miles without taking any water. Maybe the first quarter of the race, maybe even the first half of the race, they're doing fine. But after that runner continues to pass hydration station after water station after water station, eventually, as that race continues to go on, they are not going to be able to keep going. Eventually, dehydration sets in. Eventually, they get so weak, so frail, they can't even continue to move forward. It would be crazy, right, to try to run a marathon without staying hydrated. But I wonder if that word picture doesn't connect to this. I wonder how many of us are trying to run the race God has set before us without the nourishment that he provides. I wonder how many of us this morning are trying to parent. That takes more than a prayer just to parent, right parents? How many of us are trying to parent and guide the incredible gifts God has given us and the children he's given us apart from God's word. I wonder how many of us are trying to walk through cancer or medical complications in our families apart from the word of God. <clears throat> I wonder how many of us are trying to walk through grief and pain that maybe come from the loss of a loved one apart from God's word. Could it be that some of us today are struggling in our faith because we think God's going to provide from us apart from his word rather than through his word. The promises of God fuel our faith. And what Psalm 23 verses 1 through 3 promises you and me is that when we immerse ourselves in God's word, he does feed us. He does restore us and he does guide us. So here's the question for application purposes. Do you see God's word in your life as optional or is it essential for your life? Do you see the Bible and what sits before you either on a device or in your lap through a physical copy as something that you cannot live without? So simply one of the reasons why we encourage people to read through the Bible with us and the reason every single message this year I promised you I would connect our messages back to what we're reading is because I'm trying to encourage you. 
I want you to feel the joy that comes from reading your Bible every day. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that you read a verse and all your problems go away. You read one verse of Scripture and everything's great and easy. and No, but, but the Word of God, similar to that water, is what nourishes and strengthens us to run the race God has set before us. It's why, for example, not only at a personal level, but at a corporate level, we put an emphasis on this. We are a word-based church. The three priorities that we've established in worship belong and serve for the fall all center around different ministries of the Word of God. Worship is a very vertical kind of conversation where you're hearing from God and talking back to Him, declaring His goodness through the Word of God. Community through your life group, belonging to your life groups where you're gathered around the Word, where you're reading it and praying over, encouraging each other to live it out in your lives. And serving is where you're taking the Word and investing it into others. Hearing the Word, living the Word, and investing the Word are what we are encouraging you to be a part of as a church. The reason I want so desperately for you to plug in this fall to what we're doing is not because I'm trying to fill your time up with more stuff. It is because I firmly believe that when you prioritize the Word of God as a church, God moves powerfully and mightily. If we're going to see our faith grow and the promises of God fuel our faith, we've got to realize that the promise of God's provision is primarily done through His Word. Secondly, we see in this passage the promise to protect. Promise to protect. Verse 4, notice the shift where David moves from talking about God to talking to God. Look at verse 4 with me. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's a declaration David makes here that in the face of darkness, he's not afraid. And this darkness is probably more, uh, it's probably less physical danger and more kind of depression, discouragement, despair, and fear that's often associated with darkness. And David says, in the face of fear and discouragement, I'm not afraid. He even goes so far to say that he's comforted, that he's calm in the midst of despair. I saw this Friday sitting on a plane for 10 hours. You ever see those people that can fall asleep anywhere? Anybody know those people? Can't, I cannot stand those people. Uh, because I can't do that, right? I can sit on the plane for 10 hours and I'm wide awake. But there was this guy sitting two rows up for me that I noticed who from the minute we sat on the plane, head back, mouth open, full on drool, right? He's sitting there. He felt, I mean, that guy slept from the minute we took off to the minute we landed. So the captain gets on the thing and he says, we're about to hit some turbulence. And so that, you know, that starts shaking. What does this guy do? Asleep. Doesn't move a muscle. And I thought, there is comfort in the midst of darkness. <laughs> There's calm in the midst of the storm. Because that guy slept even when the plane was going up, down, side to side. And while I'm making light of that, that is a little bit of the picture here. Man, God, even in the face of world, my world kind of getting turned upside down, side to side, up and down, God, you're faithful. I don't feel afraid. I'm comforted. 
Now, what's critical in this passage is to figure out why. Why is David not afraid and comforted at peace in the midst of despair and discouragement? Look at what he says back in your Bibles in verse 4. I fear no danger, for you are with me. You see, David describes the shepherd not out in front, not from behind. He describes the shepherd's presence as being right beside him, guiding him, loving him, leading him. But this is not any kind of shepherd. Did you notice he described him as an armed escort? Did you see that? He talked about his rod and his staff. The rod was this kind of club-like instrument shepherds carried around their waist that was used as kind of a defensive weapon to ward off any that would attack. The staff was not only used for walking, but for protection as well. And so you think about armed escorts like the Secret Service who are guarding our president, who have intricate levels of defense and cars and itineraries and schedules, and they measure where to put people and elaborate kinds of armed escorts that we see in our world. What Psalm 23 23 reminds us of is you, if you know Jesus, have a more powerful armed escort than even the Secret Service. (laughs) Because you have God himself, this shepherd king, walking with you, guiding you. And while this is important, verse 5 tells us that this immediate protection ends actually in a final victory. Verse 5, the image shifts from a shepherd out on the frontier to a kind of shepherd king inviting people into his table in his tent, into a banquet. And listen to what he says at verse 5 about the protection the shepherd provides. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is a cultural picture that would often happen when a, defeat, when a victorious king would bring back his defeated foes. He would often make them sit at a banquet, at a big celebration in his honor, and they had to sit there and just stomach it. These defeated enemies had to sit there and just kind of recognize that they had been defeated. They, they were not able to say a word. They were not able to do anything. They were there as a spectacle. This is a picture of what is forecasted about Jesus Christ. That though we have immediate protection through his presence in our lives now, the psalmist wants to make very clear that the, the victory of Christ re- results in ultimate kind of protection where the, def- the enemies of Christ are defeated. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2. Listen, verse 13. It says, and when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing to the cross. Listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. The reason we have protection is not just because we have in the moment this presence in our lives through God and His grace and mercy. We also have the promise of protection because we know that in the end, Christ is victorious. So here's the point. Protection in this passage is not the absence of darkness. Protection in this passage is the presence of the shepherd. 
Let me say that again. Protection in this passage is not the absence of fear or danger. Real protection is the presence of the shepherd. But I wonder how many of us have bought into the false promise, the counterfeit promise, that we'll never experience difficulty or pain. You don't have to look far to hear people talking about this in our culture, even in so-called church circles. All you have to do is turn on certain television channels, certain YouTube channels, and find people telling you that all you have to do is have enough faith, and you'll never be sick, you'll never have problems, you'll even have a Learjet if you just have enough faith and send in a $2 gift. You don't have to look far to see that kind of false promise floating throughout our culture. And here's what I want to warn you of as your pastor If you believe that if you just have enough faith, you'll never have problems, your faith will stall out. And the reason your faith will stall out is because you're going to expect God to keep a promise he's never made to you. God doesn't promise to never walk us through darkness. He promises never leave us to never leave us or forsake us through that darkness. That's what God promises. That's the goodness of God's grace, is that even in the darkness, God is with us. And if I may be so bold, it is in the darkness oftentimes that we experience God's presence most powerfully. One of the great privileges we had this past week on our mission trip to Germany was to interact not only with Muslims we were trying to share Christ with and lead to Christ, we also had the opportunity to interact with former Muslims who've become Christians. I mean, I wish every single Christian in this room could meet some of these sweet brothers and sisters. One story kind of sticks out from this past week in my mind. A guy named Betnam who, while living in Iran, became fascinated with the cross, just the image of the cross, and saw it on the internet and heard about it. And so he started wearing a cross around his neck. Just a, just a simple cross. He was still professing to be a Muslim, but wanted to wear this cross symbol. The authorities saw him wearing it. They arrested him and beat him mercilessly for the better part of a day. Just for wearing a cross. I don't know about you, but just wearing a cross, bringing that kind of persecution, that kind of darkness would maybe unsettle me. But do you know what it did in this man's life? it actually had the opposite effect because he went in the middle of these beatings. What is it about this cross that's evoking this kind of response? Why is there such a negative reaction to the cross? So because of this persecution, he fled his country. He walked all the way from Greece to Germany. He fell, broke his legs, had terrible experience. But when he got to Germany, the first thing he did was went to a church and said, can you tell me why this cross is so powerful? Can you tell me why I got beaten mercilessly for this image? These sweet people in this evangelical church shared the gospel with this man. He became a Christian. In the darkness, amidst persecution and harm and suffering, God was not absent in his life. It was actually in the darkness that he met God, that he encountered the grace of God. 
I wonder how many of us need to be reminded today that God's promise of protection is not the absence of darkness, but His presence in the darkness. This is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, for our momentary light afflictions are producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. That's why Jesus tells us in the end when he returns, he's going to defeat this darkness once for all. In Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from heaven. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. See, we're living, believing that God is going to walk us through this darkness and this life that we live now because one day Jesus is absolutely going to rid this place of the darkness. That's what fuels our faith. That's what gives us the strength to keep going is belief in the promise of God's protection in the midst of the darkness. But thirdly and finally, we see in this text that God not only promises to provide and to protect. He also promises to pursue. I said a minute ago that in Psalm 23, you get two images. You shift from the shepherd out on the frontier with the sheep under the stars to the shepherd king in the tent around the banquet table. Notice some of the ways he goes on to describe this banquet table of victory. Verse 5 As we read a moment ago, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Here are the new elements. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. These are pictures of hospitality in Middle Eastern culture in which this was written. This anointing was not to a particular office. It was a a refreshment, an encouragement that was done as people walked through very dry and arid places. His cup overflowing is a symbolic picture of being at rest or having all that he needs around this banquet table. But maybe the most important phrase is what we see in verse 6. Look at what he says he experiences as, as he's at this table. He says, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Those words goodness and faithful love are carrying the idea of kindness or mercy and grace. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, you know that we came to the book of Ruth. Ruth was a woman of foreign nationality who married an Israelite man who died. While she has an opportunity to stay in her country, she clings to her mother-in-law, comes back to the nation of Israel. She begins to glean in this field whose owned by this man named Boaz, who's a kinsman redeemer, a family member who can help them out. And through a course of events, this man Boaz provides for Ruth. He not only lets her her glean in his field, he tells his young man, hey, listen, when you're gleaning, make sure you drop some extra parts of this harvest for Ruth so it makes it easier for her to pick things up. And there's this key exchange between Ruth and Boaz where Ruth says, why are you showing me this kind of kindness? Why are you showing me this kind of grace and mercy? And that word is the same kind of idea here. 
Why are you helping me in this position of need when you don't have to? See, what this is describing is a kind of love that's given when it's not deserved. It's a kind of love that's not warranted or demanded or even earned. It's a kind of love that's just given freely. And the key phrase here is that not only around this table of this shepherd king is David experiencing this faithful love. Look at what he said in verse 6. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. See, what I want you to see, sweet people, is that God has a pursuing kind of love for you. See, salvation is not primarily us reaching up to God and saying, God, help me out. Salvation starts with God reaching out to us. Salvation begins with God through the power of His Spirit and His Word confronting us with a message that we're called to respond to. If you go back to the New Testament and the the story of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son says, Dad, I want you dead. Give me my share of the inheritance. He leaves. He blows the money. And when he realizes that he's got nothing and he's going to come back, the Bible says that when the father saw him from a long way off, he runs to meet his son. He runs after him. And so many times I think we develop this very unhealthy view of God that he's sitting back and just waiting for us to come to him. That God is this passive deity who's got his arms crossed just hoping we figure it out. No. No, that's not the biblical picture. What's told to us here is that God runs after us. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, it's because God pursued you. However, that kind of pursuing, David's clear, doesn't stop once we come to know Jesus. That kind of pursuing love continues all the days of our lives. God continues to pursue us. This is why we believe that you cannot lose your salvation. We believe that you cannot fall from grace because grace was not primarily you holding on to God. Grace is God holding on to you. And what the Bible tells us is that God doesn't let go. I appreciate that because I think sometimes the false promise we believe is that our salvation somehow completely depends upon us. That this is all riding on me and on you. Because what I would not want you to hear from a moment ago when I talked about the word is that if you don't read your Bibles that you're a bad Christian. If you read your Bible 20 minutes instead of 15 minutes, you're going to be a better Christian. No. I'm saying there's a blessing associated with the Word of God. But never forget what Paul told us in Philippians 1. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I appreciate what John MacArthur said about this. We think about losing your salvation John MacArthur just has an eloquent way of putting things, and he said it this way. He said to a group of pastors and leaders, he said, guys, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If you could lose the grace of God, we as human beings would find a way to mess it up. Amen? I would. 
and in New York second I would. But the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is going to finish what he starts in us. You have been given a covenantal love, a, a pursuing love that David says results in him dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. This love doesn't end when we first come to know Jesus. It's only getting started when we first come to know him, and it goes on forever. God's promise of pursuing love is meant to fuel my faith and my trust in him. I saw this very powerfully with some Persian believers this past week. We talk about Persian believers, we're talking about people from the countries of Iran and Afghanistan. And if you watch the news, you know that those are two countries that are in our news a lot. But I want you to know that God is doing a miraculous work among those people. Amen. God's doing incredible things. And while the majority of our team from First Baptist went and did outreach in some refugee apartments and places where they were located to do evangelism, I had the privilege of getting to do some training with believers who'd come to Christ. And I don't know how many of you saw my Facebook profile, but I posted a picture of how long most of them have been Christians. Most of them have been Christians within the last two years. Very, very new in the faith. And I had seven or eight hours one day with these believers to teach them through a translator. And I went from Genesis all the way to Revelation and ten kind of passages of Scripture. I wanted them to see how the Bible all went together. So I went through the six covenants of the Old Testament. And then I showed them the four major developmental scenes in the New Testament. We talked about the birth of Christ. We talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We talked about the birth of the church and the return of Christ. And when we got to the birth of the church, Acts 2, Holy Spirit descends on the church, you remember? Tongues of fire, and they begin to communicate the gospel in languages that they've never studied. And because it was a particular high traffic season in Jerusalem, there were all these people from different countries that were there. The Bible says there were Arabs that were there, people from Egypt and Cyprus and Cyrene. But it also says that there were people from Mede and Elam that were there. I talked to the missionary before we were getting ready to teach that, and it's, it's confirmed that the Medes and the Elamites were the descent, the modern-day descent, the Persians are the modern-day descendants of these people. And so through a translator, I just looked at my Persian brothers and sisters and said, do you understand that God loves you so much that you are here right as the church began? Do you understand that you're not a new addition to the church? Do you understand that from the beginning, God's plan has been to draw in a people from every tribe and tongue and nation? You guys were there at the church, at the beginning of the church, and my people were pagans running around the hills of Great Britain someplace. You guys were there before I was. God's plan and his love has always been to pursue a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you could see the tears just begin to well up in their eyes. Holy Spirit just kind of descended, and we just kind of had a moment together where we saw the tremendous 
overwhelming love of God. The promise God has made to you is in a similar way to pursue you, to run after you. Not only to protect you, not only to provide for you, but to pursue you. And the question is, have you experienced that kind of love? Have you experienced the love and the mercy of the God we've sung about and talked about today? You know, one of the great tests of a shepherd in this era was the, the lengths a shepherd would go to to save his sheep. One of the things I failed to mention in this message is that sheep are dumb animals. They're not the brightest. And so sheep often find themselves in very precarious positions. Danger associated with other animals. They put themselves in spots where they can fall off a cliff or wedge themselves in a place that's dangerous for them. And so part of the test of a good shepherd was the willingness of the shepherd to run after and to protect the sheep. The Bible in multiple places describes us as sheep. And one time it says that all of us are like sheep who've gone astray. And see, while some of us may not be comfortable with the dumb animal we're connected to, it's probably a pretty good similar picture. Because no, we may not find ourselves in the same kind of dangerous position sheep find find themselves in. We're actually in a much more dangerous position. Because as human beings, we've rebelled against a holy and righteous God. We've disobeyed our parents. We've lied. We've stolen. We've held on to bitterness and lust in our hearts. And what the Bible says is that because we've done those things, we deserve a penalty of death. More than death, we deserve a penalty of wrath under a holy and just God in an everlasting hell. That's what the Bible teaches about what we deserve. But the good news is that Jesus says he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Because while you and I deserved this penalty, this punishment for what we've done, Jesus hung on a cruel cross for you and for me, offered his life, taking the punishment that we should have been given, dying in our place, and rose again three days later to say, you can be forgiven. You can be freed from the danger that you find yourself in. But you have to respond. The way that you receive this forgiveness and grace and mercy in your life is by repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in Christ. During this time of response, we're going to have in a moment, we're going to sing one more song.